there! Welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs and how their cultures make customers want to work with them and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. David, thanks so much for coming on Subject Matter. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So we've known each other for a few years now, starting in New York and uh, now with me in the UK, you, you're still in the city and things have definitely changed since then for both of us professionally. And I'd like to start by looking at the roots of your entrepreneurial journey. And you actually had a startup that was working in, in high school. Can you tell us a little bit about that startup and how it went and what that journey looked like for you as a young entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So from end of high school and into college, I owned a very small agency that was focused on bringing small and medium-sized businesses online. This was kind of during the time where not every small business had a website. You know, it wasn't their top priority. Brick and mortar was still their number one driver. And I was helping a lot of people kind of in the local community and then all over the country uh, get online and start offering their online presence. At that age, it was just like taking it day by day, like doing what, what was fun and enjoyable. And it wasn't even about building a business as much as, you know, just having some fun with it. I remember reading that that startup, when all was said and done, was actually a failure. What was it like for you when your first startup out of high school failed? I think we're actually confusing too. So I had another startup in college called Builder Buzz, and that company had unfortunately failed. The biggest thing we took from it was uh, the massive learnings. It was really like the first larger style tech startup that we started. So like the agency was still more of a smaller business. Like it wasn't about building tech as much as like you have a client, you build whatever you needed for them. And that was that. On the builder bus side is where we really tried to build like a big tech company. So there was definitely a lot of learnings there, a lot of things that didn't go to plan. It sucked, failing sucked, but yeah, you know, we were still young and hungry and it was just like, okay, on to the next thing, you know, let's take what we learned here and keep rolling. And what were those big lessons that have stuck with you from the Build a Buzz saga? It's a lot of little tidbits, but the biggest ones are we didn't focus enough on sales. So kind of realizing that sales cures all, right? You can have the best technology in the world if no one's using it, doesn't matter, you know? Mm -hmm. And just kind of prioritization of what to actually work on at what time. Don't focus on building the perfect product. Focus on getting it out to the market as fast as possible, right? Fail quickly, get an MVP out there. Probably the biggest lesson we had is we could have failed earlier, and that would have been a lot more helpful. Interesting. So it's actually, in your mind, better to fail fast, absorb the lesson, rather than dragging out a project that wasn't fit for purpose. So you've started a couple of companies since and, and worked on companies. When you go about validating the initial idea, what are some of the questions you ask yourself 
so that you're saving your future self time to make sure that this is something that is actually worth my time working on. I try to look at situations and decide if they're positive expected value, right? And that's not to say only on the capital front, but does the company have impact, right? Who is it helping? How is it helping, right? Is it something I enjoy doing? Is it going to bring me enjoyment, right? And then, of course, is it going to make money? I kind of weigh all those factors and see if the decision has a positive expected value and also what the opportunity cost is. If I work on this, what can I not work on? And the way that you're analyzing this, is, first of all, it's very rational, but it also has a lot of overlap with a game that I know we, we both enjoy, which is poker. Let's dig into that now, because something that has come up before in our conversations is how much you value poker as a game to learn how to make effective decisions in business, how to mitigate risk, how to go in on something, when to back out. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you have used poker as a tool to make decisions in your business? I've been playing poker since I was like 14 years old, and you definitely see the massive overlap. In poker, you're faced all the time with situations where you have to make a positive expected value play at any given time. One of the biggest similarities, right, is it making decisions with the massive amount of unknowns. You are forced to put your money down to make a decision before having a complete set of information. So you have to kind of extrapolate that information for yourself based on the clues that you're given or based on what you see or pattern recognition or anything along those lines. In any given situation, you and I can make two different decisions at the poker table the same way that if we're running two different companies given the same situation, we are going to most likely make different decisions. Yeah, and it depends on the information that you have and the experience you have. And just like in poker, how it comes down to the hands that you play in business, it's much more about the hands that you've played in business and the reps that you've had. And you said something interesting there, which is the that you're making decisions without complete information into the the unknown. I wonder if there are any decisions that stick out to you as particularly high leverage. So this could be choosing to move somewhere, work somewhere else, or get to meet somebody else, break off with someone else, whatever that is, where there was a lot of uncertainty. And how did you go about navigating that big decision? When you have this set of unknowns and these unknown decisions, you have to kind of use your pattern matching skills, things that you know from the past, things that maybe you know from your friends, right? A lot of people right now are kind of moving from New York to living in Florida. And that's kind of a decision that I've made to like not do that right now. And the way I gathered my information was I've never lived in Florida, right? So I spoke to people that I knew there that lived there that made the move, right? I gathered some information, spoke to people that didn't do that, right? And then I gathered the information and I used the information to also evaluate kind of my own position and say, okay, like I have this info, but here's where I'm at. My family is here. Like I recently had a baby. So maybe right now this isn't the right move. So it's not only collecting the information and, and noticing the patterns, but then it's also your personal evaluation of that information of what you think it means and how to act on it. It's not only incomplete information, it's also 
the fact that everyone has a personal stance on this information and how they would make a play, so to speak. And you've got two different skills that are developing here. So on the one hand, you have the skill of synthesizing the inputs and learning from people, reading articles, listening to podcasts to collect the information. But on the other hand, you have the skill of once you have those inputs embedded into you, deciding how you're going to act, what decision you're going to make with them. It's interesting. I remember this talk that I went to a few years ago with the CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi, a big advertising agency here in London. And I asked him, what's the number one skill you think new graduates need entering the workforce today? And he took a step back and said, the ability to turn this mm -hmm. into this. Yeah. Because we're hit with so much information that the people who can condense it down from a paragraph to a sentence and from a sentence to a phrase and then use that to make decisions, those are the people who are ultimately going to be able to move fastest in this new economy. No, absolutely. Also, this kind of goes to another thing that's extremely important in business and poker and just in generally in life, right? And that's this ability to filter the information and also to have the self-awareness to trust yourself to make the right decision, but also to really know where your weak spots are, where your strengths are, and that self-awareness is really key. I recently read a great book on somebody that never played poker, learned to play. She had a psychology background. Uh, the book is called The Biggest Bluff. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes from the book is that people often fail to see what the world is telling them because it's not the message that they want to hear. People kind of form their own opinions based on their biases. And they're not self-aware enough to say, okay, you know what, maybe this isn't right, right? This is not what I'm, you know, the clues that I'm getting from the environment. And they interpret the clues to make it more aligned with their message. And I think that's one of the biggest differentiators between a successful poker player and a losing one is the ability to let go, let go of your biases and say, okay, here's what the information is telling me. It's not what I want to hear, but I know that's what it is. So now I need to adapt and act on what I know. And it speaks to the point that it's our default state to just stay in these echo chambers because that's what keeps us comfortable. And if you're able to think like the rest of the tribe, traditionally, you will have a survival advantage over everyone else. Now, while that might have been true millions of years ago, today, if you employ that same mode of thinking of... David tells me something about my business and I say, well, actually, we're doing really well and I'm just going to ignore that, put it on the shelf. And then six months later, boom, you're hit with a problem or a risk that comes up because of that. Well, you've just placed unnecessary risk and strain on your business because you weren't open to the input. I wonder if there's any questions or heuristics that you come back to when you are having a difficult conversation with someone at Juice or at Peachy, your agency and web development arm respectively, when you have to have a difficult conversation with maybe it's a client, maybe it's a team member, and they're telling you something that doesn't agree quite with you, how do you keep yourself open and receptive to the message that you're hearing? In general, my approach is always to say, if I'm being told something I don't agree with, I always try to take time say, okay, you know what, let me think on it or let me maybe confer with someone on my team or confer with somebody else and 
you know, get another opinion, but I try to always take a step back, right? One of the biggest things I find is, especially when there's a disagreement, it's very difficult to act in the moment. You know, one of the biggest differences is at the poker table, you don't have that luxury to step away. A lot of times in business, your decision doesn't need to make be made right that second. You know, you can take a few minutes, take a step back and kind of really think about it. When you're having a direct interaction with another human being, it is a default state of humans to protect yourself and your opinions. So I always try to like not make the decision within that conversation, right? Always take a step back when I'm by myself and then really kind of try to be honest with myself and hear, you know, see, okay, is my way really the right way? Maybe there's merits in this other argument and maybe the answer isn't one or the other. Maybe it's somewhere in the in-between, right? That's the other big thing. We don't live in a binary world, right? It's not David's way or Ben's way. Mm. Something I'm saying might have merit, something you say might have merit. Maybe the answer is a mix of both of our opinions. A lot of people limit themselves to these binary decisions. In the world we live in, that's just not the case. There's always a middle ground and always an answer. Something I heard from a friend of mine, Colin Campbell, recently is that conversation is the root of better opinion. And I love the way that that's phrased because what it speaks to is that you will have your way of seeing the world and I will have mine. And it's when those ideas are able to clash and intersect that they mutate and become better. If we stay in our silos, we're only just going to perpetuate that same mode of thinking. Now, a decision that you made a couple of years ago back in September 2017 was to start your new agency. And a funny story about this is that this was my first day in New York City. I just moved there and I went to a meetup, met these two guys called Mike and Troy. And I said, oh, how are you got? What are you guys doing? How, what do you do for work? And Troy said, oh, it's actually my last day at BuzzFeed. I'm about to go and start this new agency called Juice. And so literally the the day I touched down was the day that Juice was about to officially be born. So that's nearly four years ago. You guys have gone on to become an incredibly successful agency based in the US. Now, we've been talking about what you see as a poker player or as a business leader. You have to see something that the rest of the market, the rest of the table isn't seeing. And so when yourself and Mike and Troy sat down in conversation... What was it that you thought you were seeing as an opportunity almost four years ago that inspired you to start Juice? What could you do differently to everybody else? The biggest opportunity we saw is that all three of us kind of came from an entrepreneurial background and, you know, we've all worked with agencies before and we've hired them and we kind of realized, hey, you know what, in general, agencies really suck. If you take a step back and you be honest with yourself, The agency-client relationship has a lot of interest in this alignment, right? Because the agency's goal is to maximize billables, right? And the client's goal is to get the best ROI, right? And we realized, like, hey, that doesn't have to be the case. So we created an agency unlike no other where we take a holistic approach to marketing and we're not just looking at vanity metrics, right? We're looking at the bottom line. We're looking at the metrics that really impact the business. How many sales do you have, right? How is the marketing performing? How is it bringing revenue through the door? And this was during a time when a lot of agencies were focusing on, you know, likes and clicks, you know, those don't pay the bills. So (laughs) Mm. 
that's where we kind of got a lot of opportunity. I think something that really stuck with me listening to Mike, one of your co-founders on, I think it's called Secure the Bag podcast. He talks about the need to deliver a consistent client experience at every turn. Now, you're the uh, the COO at Peachy, which is Juice's web development arm. So you are in touch with multiple partners. Your team is talking to dozens of clients at a time. How do you think about, as the leader, making sure that your team is empowered to foster a consistent client experience at every turn when they come to work with Peachy? You know, on the teams that I lead, I try to pass that same ethos onto the team and explain like, hey, number one, like transparency is key. That's what will separate us from every other agency. We tell clients exactly how it is. We're selective with the clients we pick. We want to make sure we're working with people we can be successful with. And with the clients, just straight, honest communication of, hey, here's what we can achieve. Here's what we cannot. Here's the plan. And just being really straightforward and laying all the cards out on the table to use our folk analogy again. Uh, that's really the angle that I take and how we kind of position ourselves. So let's dig into that transparency a little bit more, because you said that's the number one thing that you are telling your your clients. So what are the touch points that you use to deliver this transparency? Is it something that you're doing during your onboardings? Do you go through a process of setting expectations? Do you peel back the curtain on your numbers, for example? What are the the ways in which Juice fosters a transparent culture with your clients? Yeah, I mean, definitely through our onboardings, through weekly calls, really through absolutely all the things that we do, we're fostering this honesty and transparency, right? Like, you know, with our onboardings, we're very clear with expectations, how long something will take. We're very clear that in digital marketing, you can't guarantee results. And anyone that is guaranteeing results is, you know, not telling the truth, unfortunately. So we're definitely uh, super kind of straightforward in that respect. There's a nice narrative here, which is that you're saying that most of the industry acts in this way. But actually, Juice, the way that we act, we're going to tell you how it is and we're going to do things that way. And even though your service might not be executed that differently, the client is able to tell themselves a very different story because you haven't promised and said, we are definitely going to deliver this. And then if that doesn't happen, then there's a fallout. You've actually meted expectations to say, actually, sometimes things don't work out that way. And that's just the way the cookie crumbles. It's all about the story that you're telling, the line that you take based on what you say and your actions, how the, your counterparty will perceive you. You know, in the agency client relationship, it's all about how the client perceives you. You know, one of the things that I always tell my team, we always tell our team is in the agency client relationship, results are not the most important thing. The most important thing is the communication. Sure, everyone wants results and all agencies will work towards results, right? That's the goal. But the most important thing is the communication aspect. The fact that your client needs to trust you. They need to understand what you're doing. Clients that feel in the loop, that know what's going on, they feel comfortable with the team. Those clients will stick around forever because now in this world we live in, you know, this sure everyone's strategy differentiates a little bit, but 
everyone has access to information, right? Same thing at the poker table. You can go and learn your strategy just the way I can. The way we're going to differentiate is the story we tell and how people perceive us. For us, it's monumentally important that our clients trust us and that we're working towards a good mutual goal together with them. I love this. And let's dig into the usage of communication, because I think something our agencies share in common is that we offer communication as part of our services. And you're saying that actually the way that you interface with the client is the most important thing as well. So how do you educate a team member? So let's say you have a brand new account manager. They've just joined the team. They have no prior agency experience. Maybe they've worked with a couple clients, but not in a service context before. How would you go about educating that person to have the kind of communication that is going to allow you to deliver that consistent client experience that we've been talking about? We go through a few trainings of how to actually properly communicate with with clients, uh, how to convey information. We have new team members shadow team leads and other account managers to kind of see how they're doing and communicating it with clients. But for us, like I was saying, you know, one of the things that we always preach is like, and, and these are our company values is, you know, honesty, respect, and integrity. There's no such thing as a company that doesn't have any issues. So when issues do come up, our philosophy is we bring it to the client right away. We never sweep anything under the rug, straight up, transparent, straightforward. And most importantly, we always say, pretend you own this business. If you own the client's business, what would you expect your agency to do? And behave in that way, right? Behave like you own this business. Don't behave like you're a vendor. Behave like you are a part of this business. It's a great question of how would I behave if I put myself in the client's shoes. It's interesting that one of the highest leverage things we can do is actually not to be operational and online or delivering something, but is to actually take a step back and get their perspective and say, how would I feel if I was receiving this service or if I was using this product? And the, the really interesting thing is that if you do this for someone who's using your product or your service, the end user, then when you come to communicate with them, you're going to be able to actually say, I understand that you might be going through this or you might be feeling like this is scary because you haven't used this before, whatever that is. But that communication is going to be so much more convincing, so much more compelling because you've actually taken the time to be empathetic and put yourself in the client's shoes. Yeah, 100%. That's exactly where I'm coming from and I agree with that wholeheartedly, right? You try to put yourself into the other person's shoes it helps with being more empathetic it helps understand the situation and even statistically mathematically right if you look at poker strategy right there's something called game theory optimal and the whole goal of that approach is to do opponent modeling right to play through the situation as if you were your opponent right how would your opponent act in this situation and it's kind of the same thing here right you know not to say clients are by no means opponent but it's kind of the same thing where you're saying Okay, if I was the client, how would I act here? If this was my business, how would I act here? What would I do? And that's the kind of the way you have to think it through. So it's not only from an emotional and empathy standpoint, but from a strategy and, and statistical standpoint, it's the same thing. Like in order to make 
those E plus EV decisions we were talking about and pick the best strategy, you have to understand all the viewpoints. Going back to what you were saying and you know your example from Colin of conversation is what drives all different viewpoints and takes things into consideration. It's the same thing in all strategy. If you have one tunnel vision, single-minded, one opinion, your strategy is never going to be optimal because you're not considering all the variants. And that's kind of where it comes in and all ties together. So let's apply that now to a business situation. So this could be a risk that you're encountering that you have to deal with. This could be choosing the next big high you're going to make. It could be your next quarterly priorities. But when you're dealing with strategy, when you're deliberating with it, what is the process that you go through to make sure that you have uncovered all of these viewpoints and potential permutations? You want to try and think through all the situations which are obvious first, get those out of the way, and then kind of start thinking through what are the other situations that could happen. If you make this decision one way, what are the pros and cons? What happens? How long does it take? Kind of all the variants. Same thing with if you go the other way. One of the other things that's really important is it's not only enough to know every situation, but now you also have to think through what are the probabilities of each one occurring, right? So you know this is possible, but is it probable? And if it is probable, how probable? Because that's a massive factor in your decision making. Like if you look at people that are more risk averse, right? When they evaluate risk, they're looking at, oh, well, this could completely fail or this could happen this way. But they're not thinking about what is the probability of that. To use a very, very kind of blown up example, like you could go outside and get hit by a bus, right? It's a possibility. But what is the probability, right? Pretty low. Yeah. And and on that note, you are actually statistically more likely, way more likely to die in a car crash than you are flying on a plane. But if you asked 100 people which one they're more scared of, driving or flying, bet you anything it's going to be flying because we don't take the time to wade through these decisions rationally. We let the, the story get a hold of us that, wow, we're going to be in the air. We're so far above ground in this metal bird. That can't possibly go well when actually taking the step back. And this is actually something that came up when I was working with a uh, performance coach, Chris Sparks, who is an online poker player at a high level. And he said that when you're making decisions, if you can attribute a percentage to how confident you feel, then you can take steps to raising or lowering it. So if you're only coming back to your agency example, If you're only 60% sure that you're going to deliver a knockout client experience with this client, then you can ask, well, what are the steps that I can take in order to raise that to an 80%, to a 90%, to a 95%? Having a number is so much more potent than just saying, oh, I'm pretty confident or I'm not very confident. Because if I hear not confident, that could mean something completely different if you hear not confident as well, depending on as you said earlier, our experiences and how we have brought ourselves to the table. I want to go back to your example about the car versus the airplane, because there's there's a lot there. And I think it's a very important piece that, that we can touch on in all worlds, right? Whether that be in business, at the poker table, or even just, you know, in life, 
the phenomenon at play there is the familiarity of information. So people are familiar with a set of information and unfamiliar with another set. And they're going to gravitate to the set that they're familiar with, right? They're not looking at data and statistics and making a mathematical decision, right? They are looking at what's most familiar and what is the perception that they see. Using your example, people drive cars every day. It's very familiar to them. They know what they're doing. They do it every day. So it doesn't feel dangerous. Whereas with flying, most people don't know how airplanes work. They don't know the engineering behind it. They don't know the safety measures in place. They don't know all this information. And the scariest thing for any human being is the unknown. So in their mind, they make an extrapolation from this perception that planes are dangerous, cars are safe. And statistically, that's definitely not the case. And there's another factor at play here. People feel cars are safe because they are in control. They are driving the car or they know the person driving, right? Like there's more control. If they feel an unsafe situation, they can open the door and jump out if they need to, right? There's more things they can influence. Whereas on a flight, you're in it strapped in a seat, you know, the pilot's flying, you don't know this guy, you can't jump out the door, you can't jump out the Anything window. Anything could happen. Yeah, there are a lot of rules that you have to follow. You're not free to like roll down your window or, you know, do anything to kind of change your situation. So when you're in the flight, you're kind of at the behest of the rules and the pilot and whatever. So that makes it feel dangerous, even though that's not the case. That's kind of the key of, of what we are talking about here is it's all about this perception. If everyone operated perfectly on data, the world would be a lot different. But people don't operate on data like people operate on their perception of what they think the data is. People operate on their perception of what they think the data is. So the, there are two variables in that sentence, mm -hmm. their perception and also what they think the data is, not what it actually is, because a lot of times they don't even know the accurate data or the accurate stats. And we don't know either. Like there's just no way you could know all the accurate numbers. So you draw on your past experiences to come up with a framework or an opinion, and that's how you get there. There's a really interesting uh, book on this called The Psychology of Money, where Morgan Housel talks about how two people with $1,000 sitting in their bank account, that money could mean totally different things to them, depending on their experiences. So if I was born at a time where inflation was rife and you could get barely anything for the $1,000, then when I see inflation rates going up again, I'm going to immediately try and hoard my money to make sure that it's safe versus if it was in a time where inflation rates were low, the economy was booming and you've already seen what investment and compound interest can do early, then I might in that same event be tempted to go and invest my money. And two people can look at each other and say, this makes absolutely no sense, but it's the mark of a really empathetic founder and CEO to be able to look at those two experiences and say, well, that's just it. This isn't concrete data. They're operating based on how they perceive the data. And that's fine. There's no right or wrong answer there. It's just different. A hundred percent. That's what I was saying earlier, right? It's not binary. It's not a right and wrong. What I'm saying is a, is a combo of my understanding of the data, my perception of the situation, and my past experiences. Using those inputs, I'm creating a version of what I see. 
somebody said the other day that I was reading, you know, have you ever thought about the fact that your existence is the perception that other people have of you? So you exist in tons of different versions because the way you perceive me is different than the way some of my other friends perceive me. So like you exist in all these different versions of yourself. And we show up differently depending on the people that we're with and to an extent kind of emulate that room. Now, on the topic of perception and how you perceive things to be, I'd love for us to dig into the future a bit and stand around the crystal ball and look at where we think things are going. So the topic I'd love to get your thoughts on is the role that leaders of brands are going to play in the future for those brands. So with Peachy, you're obviously working with a lot of direct-to-consumer brands that have products in and of themselves. And a lot of the companies will be led by founders and CEOs, executives more broadly, that have copious experience to share. And we're in this world where people buy from people and the, the age of the personal brand is becoming more online. So I'm interested to hear your perspective on what do you think the role of the leader of the future is going to be? For some of these DTC companies that you're working with, do you think that that experience is already set in stone or do you think it's going to evolve? And if so, what does that evolution look like? There are some things that are the same and some things that are evolving. Throughout, even before internet businesses, you know, when you had, before that that was even a thing, leadership still mattered immensely especially when a company is starting up, right? The vision of the leader is what gets achieved. Eventually, the best leaders are able to pass that down, that vision, that ethos, how they do things to their team. And then the company embodies those values, right? So that kind of will always remain the same, right? The leader comes in, they create kind of what they believe is the vision, what they believe believe is the ethos. And they try their absolute best to pass that down to their team, their company, et cetera. Now with kind of the blowing up of personal branding, right? And everyone kind of wants to be an, you know, an entrepreneur and everyone wants to be up there and, you know, they want their image, right, to be out there. That kind of changes the game a little bit in the fact that the brands become a little more closely tied to the leader, right, to the founder or whomever especially if that founder is super outgoing, right? If the things they do really capture the eye of the public. I mean, one one great example of this is, you know, Elon Musk and Tesla, right? Right now, like if you look at that brand, they are super intertwined. You have this coming in, you know, every time he tweets something, you know, things go crazy. Like it's becoming where the, the leader and the brand are one and the same. And this personal branding, in my opinion, becomes really important to, have that differentiator, right? Because otherwise you kind of, you're not building a sustainable business if it's only based on your personal brand. Personal branding is amazing, but you also kind of want to have that separation, right? You want to have your own personal brand and the company's brand, and they should have in an ideal world, the same values and the same type of vibe almost. But you don't want to be in a situation where let's say you were to move on to do something else where that company would just go under because you're not there anymore, right? You know, you want to pass those values on to the company and go from there. But one of the amazing things that I think comes from the fact that personal brand matters so much is it forces founders to act differently in a better way. 
it forces people to actually be more cognizant of the things they say, how they behave in a public setting. And all in all, it's creating kind of a better version of founders, right? People are trying to be more empathetic and they're trying to behave themselves, for lack of better words, because, you know, kind of that personal brand is now so tied into your company brand that if you do something dumb, it's going to affect the company. Which, interestingly, comes back to that core idea of juice of transparency. 20 years ago, or maybe 40 years ago, as the founder CEO, you might have been able to get away with pretty damaging behavior kept behind the four walls of your company. But today, if you look at a good example of this is Reply All with Gimlet. One of their co-hosts actually had to leave the show because all of the toxic behavior that he delivered in the company was tweeted as a tweet storm. The tweet storm went viral. The internet sees it. He has a podcast about internet culture, and so he can't help but pay attention. So that buck of transparency stops with him. There's definitely something there about wanting to act in a better way and, and wanting to be better as a result of the accountability that we have. The last thing I'd be interested in asking you today, David, is when we connected a couple of years ago, you've mentioned how your North Star, the thing that you come back to in the long, long-term vision, is enabling education. Something I'd be interested in in asking on that topic of, of education, how people learn, is in the 2020s, what do you think founders and CEOs are going to need to do to educate themselves? What skills do you think they're going to need to have to succeed as future operators? I think the skill set required now is a lot more rounded and robust. I think the biggest one, uh, like we were talking is about, is communication. Now that the world has become more remote, you know, a lot of companies are moving to working remotely. Your spoken and your written communication becomes monumentally important. You know, when you're working in an office with someone, there's body language, there's kind of the energy of, you know, that people can see how you're feeling when you're kind of on calls or, you know, working behind a screen or in Slack. People can't see that. So communication becomes monumentally important. And these kind of soft skills and these emotional skills no one's really teaching them, right? So, you know, we have the internet, we have such open information. So like hard skills, you can kind of go on and learn, you know, I know people that learn calculus from YouTube, you know, much better than from their professors. And it's kind of a situation in which you're having kids go to college and take on, you know, in the US at least, you know, quarter million dollars or more in debt in order to get a degree that probably won't even help them. I mean, you know, if you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor, sure, great. You need a degree, you have to study, etc. But people that are graduating with entrepreneurship degrees, it uh, doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> you know, like, um, <laughs> that that's the issue. And that the fact that, you know, the schools are allowing people to carry that debt and make those decisions is a bit crazy. As far as what skills are needed, definitely the soft skills right now are super important, right? Things like communication, things like empathy, this kind of analytical thinking of how do you put yourself in another person's shoes? How do you see it from another perspective? I think that is the greatest skill that you can have, 
Uh, a lot of people are so rooted in their opinions that they refuse to see the other side. I'm not saying you need to agree with the other side, but you need to, at the minimum, understand the viewpoint, how they got there, and what the merits of that argument are. And you could still disagree at the end of all that. The great point there is that you're allowing yourself to extract from the echo chamber. So if there are other people who have a differing opinion to you, recognizing that different isn't good or better, it's just different. And one of the themes of this conversation, Colin's quote of conversation is the root of better opinion really rings true here. Because if you're able to empathize, put yourself in the other person's shoes, you can understand where their differing perspective might actually enhance yours rather than just existing in the vacuum of your own thoughts and in the media that you consume. Maybe there's something else out there to learn from as well. I think that's a great point for us to end on today, David. This has been a lot of fun. Where can the subject matter listeners keep up with you and follow you online? Uh, anywhere, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, either of those are great. My email is david at wearepeachy.com. So anybody that wants to reach out or just chat, you know, it's more than welcome to do so. You know, always great to chat with you, Ben. Really excited. Thank you for coming on. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, likewise. I'll talk to you soon. Hey, it's Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business, we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees, heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.